All right, it's the DT difference. It's 30 years experience in the game. DT systems. E-collars we've been using for a while now, but let's quickly talk about their dummy launchers. They got the Super Pro dummy launcher and the remote dummy launcher. It's a great way for you and your dog to get ready for duck season. Loud bangs. Make sure your dog's cool with gunfire before you use it. But I want you to add it to your repertoire, bag of tricks, and get you and your dog ready for duck season. It's the Super Pro Dummy Launcher by DT. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it. You and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. What's going on, everybody, for another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles? Real quick, I want to give a big old shout out to our sponsors. Big thank you to Yukonuba, the food that fuels our dogs on the road, in the field, in the blind. Um, we have been messing around with the different formulas from puppy, adult, to the 3020 sporting blend. And I got to tell you, I'm pleased with coats, I'm pleased with teeth, I'm pleased with performance. So if you're interested and want to give it the old uke try, go find yourself a bag and feed that monster of yours. Next up is Gunner Kennels, the safest, most reliable kennel on the market. They have plenty of other options as well. Right now, my old dog, Buck, who's pushing 10 years old in the month of March, he likes to snooze in his Gunner Kennel with the orthopedic dog bed which is just helpful for his joints. You know, he's worked really hard over his life, and he's got aches and pains. And that bed is the ticket. So check that bad boy out. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. You know they do our analytics, and you know they help us stay connected with you. So thank you, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. And now, tonight, I'm excited to introduce you all to Tom Keir. We met Tom at the Yukonuba HQ back in May, I think. And we sat at the table and, and be asked about dogs and New England lifestyle, playing lacrosse. But the cool part is Tom is not only a well-renowned outdoor writer, but he is a grouse machine and woodcock connoisseur. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining our show. Do me a favor. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, guys, I really appreciate you having me on, especially uh, with busy schedules and uh, the holidays, etc. So, um, so thanks very much. Um, I grew up in Connecticut on a dairy farm, right in the middle of what used to be the Connecticut River Valley Firearms um, Companies. Uh, I was born in Meriden, so I have a 
penchant for shooting Parkers because that was our local gun, but Marlin was um, two miles away in North Haven. Mossberg and Winchester were nine miles away in New Haven. Colt was just up the road uh, in Hartford, about 18 miles away. And then you had uh, Ruger and um, Smith and Wesson in just over the border in Massachusetts above the tobacco fields. And my first, you know, so it was a different era. That's when, you know, and I think that was something that we had touched upon at the, at the Ukanuba event was, you know, how, how landscapes have changed. And, you know, even in the Northeast, it used to be a lot more rural than it was. So just, you know, walking down the road, walking out the back door, it was easy to, to hunt. It was really easy to fish and it's not that way anymore. Um, my first dog was an Irish setter and she was the best dog I've ever hunted over for about five minutes. She was a <laughs> line bur- and, and I, I, I poke no fun at, at the current Irish setters and the red setters. Um, but she was, uh, 1969, it was, uh, you know, the too much line breeding, a lot of the, the show stock to bring out some of the, the better characteristics, you know, um, so she looked great, um, ran great for five minutes and after, and if she was on a bird back then, we had a lot of, you know, grouse, woodcock and, and wild pheasant, um, she'd be perfect. But after that, she'd catch you know, some scent and, you know, we didn't have e-collars back then. So she'd be gone for a day, maybe two, sometimes three and come back vomiting and defecating and just be a total mess. And we wound up having four of them. So no way. (laughs) Yeah. Really? really, Yeah. And, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I started, becoming interested in in training dogs and working with dogs to understand them because i just couldn't understand the you know the first second third and fourth dogs that we had because you know they were just uh just too much line breeding so the fifth time's the charm what was like what do you think the difference was on the fifth one uh i switched to english setters (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) So do you think that line breeding was intelligence, lack thereof, or talk to me a little bit about your methodology or thought behind that a little? Um, they weren't dogs that we were breeding. Um, my late dad was a soldier, so um, he was, uh, you know, they were dogs that he'd pick up. He was a big gun collector, big shooter, um, big fisherman and hunter. But uh, so there were dogs that he would pick up from from other guys who, you know, you'd, you'd always hear it. It's uh, this is the great litter coming out. This is the best litter. And it's, you know, the genetics, as you guys know, um, are just critical to a dog's success. You know, the better the genetics, the easier the training and the better the performance. And, um, you know, it was just that combination of show and field stock that was, um, you know, done to make them look better and perform less. So, you know, breeding is something I had covered that in a piece for, um, for the rough grouse society a while back, I think maybe a a year or two ago for Matt Soberg, who was the editor and it was called um, backyard 
uh, breeders. And there's breeding is really important. It's, it, you know, there's a, a saying that just because you have a great apple pie and I have a great Boston cream pie doesn't mean that if we put them together, we'll have a phenomenal pie. And I think a lot of people look at that. Um, and that's where some mistakes are made. But for the guys that really look at coefficient of inbreeding and overall health and performance, that's it's a real skill. It's a it's a real knack, and there's a little bit of voodoo science that gets thrown in for luck. But you know the guys that that breed, you know, up your way, uh, Pete Flanagan, you know, Grouse Ridge Kennels, um, yep. you know, four generations of of guys that really knew what they were doing. Yeah, that's actually where my English setter is out of. She's from Majority Grouse Ridge Lines, and I got her from a gentleman. Maybe you know of him. His name's Styles Bridges. I know the name. Yep, he's up near Ogdensburg, uh, up in that area. Messina, maybe? And he and the Grouse Ridge gentleman were running field trials together. And, you know, so Andy's got a lot of that line going back and... I'll tell you what, I'll be very honest with everybody. She's a meat dog to me, and I've got a lot of client dogs, so she might get a few sessions a week with actual training, but natural talent and desire to work is through the roof. And, you know, that that biddable temperament, you know, the big heads with a lot of bird smarts, um, you know, with the males running about 40, 45 pounds, the females running about 30, 35 pounds. They're real athletic dogs. Um, they've got good stamina, um, you know, great noses, excellent drive. You know, there's a lot to be said for, for breeding by professionals. Yeah, I agree. I agree. She's a good walk behind dog. Um, where Kevin's dog is still very young, but likes to run big. And we got her from a friend of mine in Ohio and she breeds for that to hunt quail in big country. Um, so Kevin's dog is learning how to rein it in a little bit in the grouse woods where Andy is, you know, 50, 60 yards in front of me, works back to 20, gets back out there. And man, I'll tell you this year, she's turned it on. How old is she? Uh, good question. I think two. This is her second <laughs> season. She's like two <laughs> so and a like, half. She's my meat dog. I think she's. I got her at six months last June. Yep. So she's coming up on two. That's great. Yeah, absolutely turning it on. So, but again, like you said, that comes from breeding and natural instinct, and someone who knows what they're looking for, trying to pull that out of a dog. And I'm sure other people might hunt behind her too and be like, oh, this dog doesn't hunt big enough, or they may not like some of the style, but she's for me is finding grouse and woodcock and hanging on to them until I can get there. And, you know, matching your hunting style to the type of dog that you're going to hunt is, to my mind, real critical. You know, I see a lot of folks that are, you know, whether they're reading online or they're um, watching youtubes or reading about particular lineages and you know they they get a a logical view of what they want out of a dog and they're disappointed when they actually get the dog from that particular breeding you know some um you know when it comes to cover dogs 
Some of them will cast uh, inside of 30 yards. I like them to be a little bit more athletic. I like them casting into uh, inside a bell range, you know, which is depending on the wind, somewhere around 100, 125, 150 yards. And then you have your your performance dogs that, you know, I've seen a lot of pointers and and uh, and some setters that are out in the 200, two and a quarter, 250. So yard range. So when you have dogs of that scale, you know, casting between 30 and 250 yards, you really have a lot of different dogs to pick from. So matching your hunting style with that dog, I think it adds a lot of happiness and a lot of fun to, to, uh, to your hunt and to your training. Cause if you have, sure. if, if you move slower and you have a dog that's way out in front, it's tough to get up. You you guys know that. It's tough yeah. to move 250 yards in a in a grouse cover. Right. Now, real quick, you touched on something that maybe some of our listeners don't know or understand or have heard of, but cover dog. Can you describe that to people? Yeah, they're they're you know it's um it could be any type of breed. It could be well you know um Bob Whaley, um yeah. former owner of uh, Elhu Kennels and Genesee brewing um you know had had a great shooting dog that would adjust itself to the terrain a lot of the cover dogs are used to um being able to navigate a really dense environment you know so you'll have um all age dogs uh that are used to soft grasses, you know, Johnson grass, love grass, wire grass, that um, they can move through it real quickly. They'll run an edge, they catch um, scent, and then they'll move in to, say, a covey of quail. Um, and they're they're built to, to run bigger. The cover dog is designed to be able to athletically move through bull briars, raspberries, um, you know, uh, primary and secondary growth like alders, popple, uh, white birch, aspen, and any of the other, you know, briars and brambles that are inherent in a primary and secondary growth, a young growth forest. So they have to be a little bit more athletic, but they have to know their way around the terrain. And that's, that's a skill that I see when some of my friends that might be from Kansas or from North Carolina, when they bring their dogs up, um, to hunt, um, it takes the dogs a few days to adjust to the different situation. Sure. And that cover dog is a trial, which would be, you know, first, second, third, fourth type of thing. Correct. Um, there are cover dog trials, um, for, you know, cover dog specialists, whether they're pointers or setters, most of them are pointers and setters, but you'll see a lot of other cover dogs, uh, that are versatile dogs that are used in the grouse woods, like short hairs, uh, been seeing a lot more Vizlas recently, um, you know, but they're pointing dogs. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're working for grouse. Yep. They have grouse. to, um. Yeah, they're they're looking to pin the grouse. The reason that speed is so uh, desirable is that the combined with bird smarts is that you know the dog can actually pin the bird. That you know if you have a slow moving dog, well as you guys know, grouse don't like to fly. You know when they take to the air, they they can become victims of 
avian predators like a goshawk. So they like to run. And because they're running through the thick cover, um, you know, blowdowns, brush, briars, um, you know, they'd prefer to stay in the ground. And, and if you have a, a dog that moves real fast, that knows that has good bird smarts and can figure out the direction that the bird is going in, they will move quickly and pin the bird. So they, they come up upon the bird and the bird sits. It won't run out and it doesn't take flight. And, and that's called pinning the bird. And, and that's a super desirable um, characteristic in a grouse dog. Well, that, so I would pair that with also respecting the bird's space so they're not too close and bump the bird. Well, that you're exactly right. You know, if if you have a dog that, and I'm working a young puppy that's out of um, Thor Kane and Jim Chambers' recent litter from last year, and, you know, he's uh, 13 months right now and getting the hang of it. He's been, he was hell on Woodcock this fall and, and good with grouse. He's, he's getting better at the grouse game, but he's trying to do exactly what you were talking about, which is figuring out how much pressure they can put on a bird. Right. In your opinion, because I am, uh, I would consider myself a novice at this end of the game. It's got to be just bird contacts. It's not training. You know, I, I can work her and pop a pigeon or something if she gets too close to the pigeon. But as far as a wild bird, that's going to teach the dog. As you guys both know, um, a pen-raised bird that's either put in a cage or released on a um, on a launcher or even put out in the field, they they behave differently than a wild bird. So I try to train as much as possible um, just on wild birds. In the spring, when the when the woodcock start migrating back, um, we'll start running dogs and. March and April, we lay off when we start seeing the sky dances because that's indicating that the breeding's around the corner. So we'll pull them out. And the same thing for grouse. But the more wild bird contacts you can get with your dog, the better wild bird dog they're going to be. Sure, sure. So, I, you know, going to that point, you know, here where we're from, we're still on, like, scouting missions trying to find birds. You know, we've we've been lucky enough to find a few little hot spots, but we'll also walk miles and not get a contact. I'm assuming where you like to hunt, there's a higher density. Um, yes, no. You know, um, uh, urban sprawl's been a big problem in the last probably 30 years, 40 years started seeing it in the in the early 70s um been seeing a lot of anti-hunting sentiment with uh we lost four covers that were uh that were two great two of my best grouse covers and two decent woodcock covers to um postings um there were some yeah, four properties were sold to folks that were from away and the first thing that they did is post them. So that's a frustration. But the other part of running, running your dog in the spring on wild birds is that you can scout out other areas. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I'll I'll run the dogs in the spring, lay off once they start to nest, and um, and then in August, usually around second week in August, third week in August, we'll start running the dogs again to get ready for the season. So I I try my best to have my covers figured out of which ones are productive, which ones are marginal, um, which ones ha- are you know, overgrown and aren't supporting as many birds as in the past. And then I'll look for flight covers, you know, which are mostly around uh, big fields that run into river bottoms um, because those are, those will fill up in, you know, second, third week in August, um, not August, October when the flights are on. Um, So that that way, you know, I'm spending more of my hunting time, my hunting season hunting as opposed to looking for, for spots. And, uh, it's better for the dogs. They get year round work. They're getting wild bird contacts instead of released birds. And, you know, it's setting me up for a successful fall. Sure. Now, how many dogs do you own? Right now we've got three. Uh, we had to put one down last November and, um, looking at, and uh, so the puppy came, the puppy was going to, was going to be the fourth. We had to put a, another dog down two years ago. So uh, both of those were a little unexpected um, cancer. Uh, two years ago it was a seven year old dog. Last year was a 10 year old dog. So I thought I might have another two years out of her. Um, so we've got three and are looking at a puppy for some time. Uh, litter should be whelped around June. Where are you so, getting that puppy from? Uh, from Pennsylvania. I'm a big fan of the Pennsylvania dogs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, Thor Kane has taken over Dick Brenneman's um, spot for Dick Brenneman and Bob Watts uh, were cover dog setters um, out of state college. And, and, uh, they're just phenomenal breeders. They're big time field trialers. Um, they've consistently produced excellent dogs for 50 years. Wow. Uh, Jim Chambers is another, uh, real solid breeder. Uh, Roger Hoover is another guy that, um, I've gotten two dogs from. So I tend to look for some of the smaller private litters. You know, when I see the genetics uh, that I like that are, are going to be paired. Gotcha. And do you have a personal preference on looks? Um, not particularly. You know, um, I like a dog to look good, but I'm more interested in their performance and their nose and if they've got good bird smart and, and if um, if they're in the right size. You know, I like that the males in the 40, 45 pound range, um, for the setters and, and the females, um, 30, 35. So they've got to have good confirmation, but, um, you know, looks are, if, if they're great looking dogs, then that's a bonus. But sure. I'm really looking at the performance. Well, that's how I try and describe to people as well. You're not looking. You're going to have a great family member, and you're going to have a great dog no matter what. But you want performance first, because if they sleep on the couch and don't want to go swimming, then what's the worth if it's just good looking? So, you know, look for performance, and then you're going to create a great 
everything else next. But, you know, I guess where I was thinking is the setters kind of come in all different color schemes, you know, and I didn't know if there was just like, oh, that, that one's the one or just good looking in terms of like my females black and white with a little bit of brown ticking and, you know, the little buttons on her eyes with the brown and Kevin's is white and orange. I just didn't know if there was like, you know, I always lean towards the white and orange or whatever. No, I've had, um, you know, blue Belton's, uh, orange Belton's, um, had tricolors. Probably if I, if I had, uh, to pick, I'm a fan of the tricolor. Um, my daughter's dog that we lost a couple years ago, we used to call him the Zeus of setters because he's just stunningly gorgeous. Half mask. He was a tricolor. He was, uh, a male, 55 pounds, um, you know, perfect tail set, 90 degrees, uh, big head, um, had the, the wide muzzle, which is great for, uh, respiration and circulates the air a little bit better so that, you know, as opposed to the smaller muzzle so that, um, their endurance is better. Um, you know, but, you know, it, it's, so if you can get a stunningly good looking dog like like Albert was um and have a performance dog then you know you've kind Twice of good. Oh yeah. Absolutely. But given yeah, the I, option of a good looking dog or a a good performing dog, I'll take the good performing dog every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Absolutely. You know now, that. You're, yeah, me too. Me too. Now when you're working a puppy, you know, so you've got a, you said 13 month old, you know, learning the ropes. When you get him, this is where I think the retriever world and the pointing world sort of differs where a lot of the pointing world, and I want your opinion on it. They tend to quote unquote, allow the dog to mature and allow the dog way more time than like, a, for instance, some of my buddies run that and their year and a half old dogs aren't doing a quarter of what my six month old retriever puppy is doing because we're starting them off right and teaching all along the way, not kind of going raw and just letting them be a dog, if you will, um, for so long. What is, how, how do you try and develop a young setter? You know, that's an excellent question. And, um, you know, from looking at, at, at social media, I see, that there are a lot of younger trainers and handlers that are trying to move their dog along very quickly. Um, and I remember uh, I had made one post on my wife's dog. That's from Buck Carico's uh, last litter. A lot of uh, had Grouse Ridge Reroy, um, Penn Star, Full Blast. You know, it was just a, a very well-bred dog. His name's Rebel. And he came along really quickly. Um, my friend Roger Hoover uh, shot the first woodcock over his point that he did perfectly at five months. Now, that's the fastest dog that I've ever had come around. Sure. So I had posted that on, um, I think, on, on Facebook, just as, you know, just a first point over, uh, over rebel Roger Hoover killed the first bird and, uh, you know, got some real snotty messages about, 
what are you waiting for so long? And, you know, my dog is steady to wing shot and drop at three months. Jeez. And, you know, some of that stuff, you know, and, and it, it concerns me that there are a lot of other people that are all watching, you know, these dialogues. So they seem to think that you gotta, if you don't, if you have a dog that's six months old and it's not broke, that you're doing something wrong. And my experience has been that some dogs come along faster than others. He was really fast. Um, Cider, my my puppy, I shot the first bird over him when he did everything absolutely right at uh, at twelve at third. Uh, yeah, he was twelve months. Yeah. So he was a little slower. And Rowdy that we put down last year, she was slower, and she was fifteen months. But you know, I think not rushing the dog and and you know letting the dog be a puppy um let him get the basics you know get your yard work done make sure that you have a connection with the dog that the dog is obedient um recall is is good and let him knock some birds start to staunch him up and um you know take your time It'll What's your methodology? What's your methodology for making it more staunch? Well, that's a an interesting question. I'd um, I'd been pretty much using um, the Delmar Smith method for the most part. Um, you know, check cords with a half hitch, and I was talking with Thor Kane and Jim Chambers about it. Um, Cider, the puppy is uh, is he's fast. Uh, he's real aggressive and just lives to hunt. So I've been having some problems with him on, you know, standing as birds. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, putting the belly band on, um, using two collars, one e collar on the neck for control and handle. And then the second one around a belly band, uh, for staunchness has been working. The half hitch around with a check cord has been working. And putting him in more situations where he can be successful. I find that that, rather than having it be so random and, you know, he see, he, he wins a bird, he locks up, the bird walks or the bird moves and he rushes in to flush that if I can manage the situation a lot better, I'm, uh, I'm starting to see better results out of it. So here's my question from, from a trainer's point of view. You're doing that all on wild birds? Um, I'll let them knock wild birds. And when they start to stop to flush, I know that I can start putting more training pressure on them. If they're just, and so they will naturally go forward and, you know, they'll run over birds and they get excited and they put the birds up. But when they start stopping to flush, uh, stopping at the flush, I know I could start moving towards the next steps. And that's when I'll start running them with a check cord. Then I'll get some, um, and I'll, I'll bring them into areas like, you know, woodcock are great training birds, particularly because there are certain parts of every cover that always hold birds. Mm-hmm. So I will bring the, the young dogs into those areas where I'm real certain that there's going to be one, two or three birds within maybe a two or three acre patch. 
and I can run them with a check cord and and be present so that when yeah. they point, I'm there so that they're not we're not just prospecting. You know, it's a little bit more deliberate. Right. Yeah. And then, go ahead. Oh, and then then I'll move on to you know the the release birds. Gotcha. So that's where, like, I, I guess again, as I would consider myself more of a novice at it, it's I'm using homing pigeons, and will develop the point that way. And if they creep in, I'll pop the pigeon under my control, where I know where that is planted, and I know if they're overrunning it and you know trying to bump it, or you know give them time, and then I'll overlay with the check cord, and I can have a little more control over it mainly because I, I don't have the resource of wild birds and the time to go and just say, all right, you know, I'm going to go hunt this cover with five dogs. You know where I see the differences, though, Bob, is is uh, you're doing it from a professional manner in the sense of people are paying for you to have it done, and I want it done in a few months, and, you know, go get it done, where if – Tom is looking to have a dog for the next 12 years. He wants it done right and is okay with being patient, things like that. Does that make sense? Or at least that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, Tom, I think you'd jump in on that. Uh, I think you guys are both right. I mean, how many dogs do you guys have in your kennel? I'll tell uh, you, it's a lot more than my three right now, normally four. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we have 20 to 24 dogs, and most of them are retrievers. So, you know, to do five pointers, I've got to have my pigeons lined up in the field and plan them out and run them. So you've got six to seven time, depending on, you know, how many dogs you have in for training or if you've just had a litter, you know, you've got six to seven times the number of dogs that I do. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So that so you have a lot more training that you're doing on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, you know, level than I am. I can really drill down and focus on on my dogs. And the older dogs, they don't, you know, <clears throat> the older dogs that have a lot more experience will get a lot more conditioning work um, than the younger dogs that, you know, that need to learn the basics and then to move on to, you know, being steady to wing, steady to shot, steady to drop. So I tend to focus a lot more of my training effort on the younger dogs because the older dogs have a lot more experience. Yeah, good point. Do you force shot your dogs so they'll deliver the bird to you or do you just go get it? Um, I think that it's an important characteristic to have a, a dog that will point dead. Um, it's desirable. I think that that's a must-do command, you know, that the dog, after point, after shot, after the bird drops, um, the dog has to, at a, at a minimum, point dead. It can't just go on and start looking for another bird to point. Um, Some of my, uh, all of the dogs I've had will retrieve grouse, quail, and pheasant. 
Um, it's taken some time with, with some of them. The woodcock has been a little bit tricky. Um, there's that old adage that a lot of dogs just don't like to pick up woodcock. Mm-hmm. So I'll work on some force fetching, but, you know, again, I'm a hunter. I'm not a trialer. Uh, I'm not a pro trainer. Um, so it's, they have to point dead. And if they'll fetch the bird, then that's a desirable characteristic. Yeah, that's a bonus. But at least yeah. you're finding the game so you don't have to go look for it. Correct. Yeah, that's smart. I like that. Tom, I, I was I, gonna say, go, go ahead, ahead, Bob. That's fine. Nope, you're up. Uh, well, I wanted to hear about you, you, I, a while ago now. I guess you, you had talked about your first dog that was an Irish Setter. Um, do you remember going out on your first hunt with him? What was that like? Well, you know, I mean, you guys are dog men, so. Used to do a lot of deer hunting when I was younger. I haven't deer hunted in a long time. Um, like the turkey hunt. Um, if I miss some days during the turkey season, it's not a problem. But, you know, I don't miss a day during bird season. Really? And Yeah. And I don't miss many days during waterfall season and it's because of the dog. Right. So, you know, do I like to shoot birds? Absolutely. We all do, but I like to shoot birds because it's the reward for the dog that has done the job properly. You know, so when a dog is casting, starting to get birdie locks up on point and I go in and flush the bird you know, I expect to kill as many of those. Do I shoot a hundred percent? No, of course not. I miss a lot, but my effort is, you know, 110% to kill those birds um, because the dog has done its job. I don't really care about the tailgate shots. I like to eat birds, um, but it's really, um, you know, the dog work that kind of flips my switch and, you know, be honest with you, I'm, I have never been so proud as when I grabbed a, a shotgun and cut the dog loose, and I've never been so miserable as I did when the dog ran off and, you know, I didn't know what to do. So, And I think that's what hooked me, though, in kind of a, a weird way. If it was too easy, um, I probably wouldn't be so fanatical about dogs yeah i remember it's funny that you mentioned you know the first dog that set the tone and would run away and and all the issues our first family dog was a chocolate lab and by all extents and purposes he was the best dog we ever had but also the worst dog didn't come when he was called would steal our winter hats and gloves off us and run away you know just a bastard but he was so good at being a family member and i remember you know walking him on leash down the road you know taking him for a walk and he wanted to get home and he drugged me on my belly all the way home and it was like i sat i was probably like eight and i cried and i told my dad i go i you know i hate him 
you know, why can't he be good like so-and-so's dog who can be off leash and hang out with us and just pal around the neighborhood. And it stuck in my brain when I got my first hunting dog that I don't know how far I can take him, but I want to take him somewhere and make him the best I can. And then it spiraled into now, you know, my business and my lifestyle and a podcast and traveling the country doing this stuff. But that first dog who had things I couldn't figure out and didn't know how to do that made me want to do it better. And every dog I get, I want it to be better than the last one. And uh, that kind of rung through with it. So I had a horse like that. It was a barn rat. The further away from the barn that it was a Morgan. It was a big Morgan. It was a, a 15 three. And, um, but the further away from the barn that we went, the slower the horse went and, you know, you turn around and as soon as it sees the barn, you know, <laughs> it's like the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, so taking the first dog out, um, for that first run, it was at, uh, our neighbor's farm, Mr. Beaumont. And he had a, um, you know, he was, he had, uh, registered Holsteins like we did and he had a big, uh, cornfield and there were wild pheasant there and i'd asked him if you know i'd swapped out work for him so i'd buck hay in the summer and he'd let me hunt in the fall and um i took the dog out and you know had the bell on uh no e-collars no beeper collars uh just a lead um she was healing great um got to the to the corn you know saw a couple pheasant cut her loose, popped two shells in, was walking. She was casting great. Everything was good for about five minutes. And then I saw her headed for, uh, for the tree line. And, uh, that's where there were usually a couple of, of, uh, of white tail. And I was whistling her back and she wasn't listening wasn't listening, wasn't listening. And she was gone. She came back the next day. I thought I lost her. You know, I was, I think I was 11 years old and, you know, terrified that I was going to get whooped up by my dad for losing a dog. <laughs> okay, it was not good. And then she came back and, you know, vomiting and skinny and, you know, we went back and did it the next day. There you go. Um, do you remember the first hunt with a good dog? Was it somebody else's or something that set the tone where it's like, I want one like that? Um, I don't know that there was any one dog that really, um, you know, made me think twice, but I remember seeing, uh, my neighbor, uh, a couple miles away had a Weimaraner that was a really good dog. Um, but his dog's name was Liz and I used to call it Liz, the wonder dog, because we always wondered what dog was going to show up the good one or the not good one. <laughs> um, but I remember seeing, you know, some glimpses of brilliance with, with Liz on the, on the good days. And then, you know, just started looking around at, at other guys that had setters and, um, there were a lot of labs around, um, and just started noticing that there were different, I guess what I first noticed is that there are different levels of dogs. You know, there are, um, Poor dogs, they're average dogs, they're good dogs, they're great dogs, they're exceptional dogs, 
but I think that it comes down. What what always struck me is that, um, you know, it, it's it's a genetics are of critical importance, as you both know. But I think that it's you can take an average dog, and if you spend time with that dog and are training by uh, a method, that you can really bring that dog along you can bring that dog further along than if you're only working with them, you know, once, once a month. Sure. Absolutely. If anything in life, you want to get more fit. You got to go to the gym more than once a month. Right. Absolutely. Well, and so, also that, that partially too is genetic. You know, yep. genes, you're going to stay fit. Hold on. I'm yell at a puppy for scratching. Quiet. Lay down. <laughs> oh, Quinn, she's getting a little diggy. Oh, um, so, so that's to, where after you've, uh, after, you've, you know, I've gone through a bunch of dogs that have been, you know, have been average and, and have spent a lot of time with them to bring out their best qualities and they've performed far better than they would have if I only trained, you know, once a month, you know, we're fortunate where we are now is that we have. Uh, about 75 acres of conservation land behind our house. So we're running the dogs every day and, and that's a blessing. Um, because if I lived in a city or, you know, in a small to medium sized town, uh, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I think having access to, to open space where, where you can train regularly, where it's easy. It's it's some you know instead of taking lunch break I'll go and run the dogs. At the end of the day, instead of having a beer, I'll go run the dogs and then I'll have a beer. You know, so being able to do it regularly is important, I think. And that's you know, when good- it gets you to the point on the genetics that once you're doing it on a regular basis and you're bringing your average dogs and to an elevated position like a good dog, then you really want to start looking at the genetics to get a great dog. Because how many dogs, how many dogs of excellent genetics do you see that don't get worked much? Oh, too many. And that's a bummer. Yeah, it's a waste. They'll come back chubby and sleeping on a couch and pent up, and you know, and it takes a while to get them back. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um take this conversation somewhere a little different i want to hear about some of the places you've hunted as far as like maybe a vacation with your dogs and you know bucket list places you want to go or where's like something species you've killed stuff like that um well i've, I've hunted i've been you know fortunate for um for the work that that i've been doing for the last 30 years to be able to incorporate hunting and fishing into, you know, my work. So um, I've been blessed to go to a lot of places that I ordinarily wouldn't have gone. Like, um, always wanted to hunt pheasant in South Dakota, did that. Um, I have been going to New Brunswick, Canada for 20 years. That started a long time ago when the... uh, the woodcock limits dropped from five to three birds. And then the season was shortened from 45 days to 30 days. So New Brunswick woodcock season opened September 15th. So I would start 
you know, just looking for ways to extend the season. And since I started going up there, it reminds me of what New England was like in the 1950s when, you know, you had a lot of farms that were reverting, um, you know, like that Burt Spiller, Corey Ford era that I've read about um, when the pasture land was reverting to primary and secondary growth. So I like New Brunswick a lot. We um, we hunt in New Hampshire for the, the entire month of October and the first week in November because, uh, you know, we work remotely. So as long as I have um, an internet connection, um, I'm able to work from wherever. So we'll, we'll do that. Um, I've been, you know, also blessed that my wife's from the South. So I've hunted in Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, um, for quail, but I haven't been finding many wild quail. So I've been looking at woodcock down there for the last five, six years, and that's been a lot more fun. Um, I've never hunted southwestern quail like Marin's, um, so I'd like to do that. Um, never been to Montana. Would love to hunt prairie birds. Sure. Um, would love to get to, you know, being out here on the coast, we shoot a lot of sea ducks, and they're fun, but I'd love to go to um, Arkansas at some point. Um you know, uh, I hadn't flooded timber once in North Carolina and just thought that was like a gas. Yeah. So That's a bucket listing for me as well. And I will bust up to my buddies who invited me and then I couldn't go and they went without me. Uh, they're actually hunting down there, um, in Arkansas, green flooded timber. And I just, you see it on TV or videos and man, that is my friend bought a gravel pit for 500 bucks and it was near a river it was an abandoned gravel pit and there were a bunch of um oaks in it and on one side in the back and i said why did why would you buy a gravel pit and he's like watch this and he he lined it and he planted some corn in the front and then uh pumped some water in from the river and it was it was like the combination of upland and waterfowl hunting because we're standing next to the to the oaks and the mallards are coming in and the woodies and the teal and man that was that was a hoot that's cool now do you do you have a, a duck dog I don't we do swaps um most of my buddies have chesapeakes and um and we'll hunt with them and then I'll swap out some, uh, some upland trips. So down here they'll run their dogs and then they'll come up to New Hampshire and I'll run my dogs. When you say down here, what do you mean? Uh, I live on Cape Cod. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we've got a marsh right behind the house that I could walk to and, you know, set out some deeks and jump shoot and, but um, we also have uh, – I live in the town of Wellfleet, so there's a uh, Wellfleet Harbor and on the bay side. <clears throat> um, there's some great spots with a lot of um, eelgrass for Brant. And um, then we've got Old Squaw, uh, Buffleheads, uh, Surf Scoter, Eider, 
So we'll hunt with their chassis down here, and then when we go to New Hampshire, we'll hunt with my dog. So we just do a swap, and it works out great. That's so cool. Selfish plug real quick. We are uh, we just bred uh, Chesapeake that I trained. Her name is Ember, and uh, I don't own her. My buddy does. And so if you know anybody looking for a good chassis, and hopefully, God willing, she's pregnant, but they're going to be – she's – if I had if one dog that wasn't my own, I, I love her to death. Unbelievably talented young dog. We did a she passed the Master National. She was the youngest Chesapeake at Master National to pass. I will I think, absolutely like, keep my my ears open. Yeah, thank you. But uh, um, but anyways, yeah. So that's pretty cool. So we uh, I like to do one duck or hunting trip a year. And uh, this year we went to Florida for redheads and didn't shoot a single redhead. We shot mergansers, basically. It was a, it was kind of a wash, but it was the camaraderie that made it. And we all, we were actually kidding around, like, man, you know, I just love spending time with you guys, but I wish we were killing ducks, right? You know, but I feel like when you're in the uplands, you know, how are you scouting new areas you've never been? To, to some of the younger crowd that listen and, and either want to get into it or, you know, it's their first dog and they're struggling to find cover. What are you looking for in an area you've never been? How are you finding cover? Um, you know, uh, I do it the old fashioned way. I've got topo maps and boots on the ground. So, um, I'll take the topo maps. Um, the only modern tool that I'll use is Google Earth, which I've found to be helpful. And I do, mo- most of my winter is spent looking for, you know, picking up a top of map, starting with the areas that I have, and then looking for patterns that would be similar in a different area. And I'll kind of highlight those areas on a top of map. Then I'll get onto Google Earth and look for two different things. One is, access you know is it easy to get into can i see any houses are there you know buildings um etc and then um i'll take a drive up and put the dogs down knock on doors for permission um my alcohol bill in october is through the roof because i pass out (laughs) bottles of whatever the landowners that let me hunt their properties drink and um um I look for clear cuts. Uh, the state used to provide, uh, areas where they had timbered. And I look for the time of somewhere between eight and 30 years of when it's been logged. Cause that'll show that that's when you're getting that primary and secondary growth. Um, I'll visit, uh, lumber mills. They've been real helpful. Um, because they're processing the wood and they'll tell me where it came from and they'll give me a, a general idea. Always grease them with a bottle of booze because, you know, they're a wealth of information. Um, you know, there's some of the other maps I, I haven't gotten onto Onyx, but, um, I know a couple of guys that have been using that because it shows, uh, logged areas, I guess. But most of it is top of map, Google, look for certain parallels that are 
similar to an area that I know is productive and then, you know, head to that area and put some boots on the ground. Sure. How many miles are you covering when you go out and do these things? Like what's an average day for you? Oh, a lot. I spend a lot. I I spend more time scouting than I do hunting and running the dogs. You know, um, it's just how to, you know, it's just a process of elimination. You know, I've seen a lot of covers, you know, so you, you always look for the food source. Um, you're always looking for, um, you know, you can, for grouse, you can listen for drumming grouse. You can find drumming logs with a lot of scat that are on them. Um, but you're going to be looking for a mixture of greens, fruits, nuts, um, you know, so for, for, Hard mast, um, acorns and beech are, are common for soft mast. You're going to look for raspberries, high bush cranberries, um, uh, conquered grapes. Um, uh, for old apple trees. Apples are apples. You know, I've found to be, I always look for the apples, like you said, but I have rarely found a lot of grouse and the apples in the last probably 15, 18 years. Hmm. But I always look for them. Um, What I have noticed is that, um, you know, when you look at an apple tree, if you see that the whole bottom has been stripped and they're just apples at the top, you know that that's indicative of a bear that's just getting in and pawing them down. But I'll always check the apples to see if they've been pecked. But um, I've been seeing... um, you know, high bush cranberries have been more reliable in the last uh, probably five, six years. Um, you know, spearmint, wintergreen on the greens, clover, um, something that's near a field. You know, so like uh, young aspen, young alder, young young popple um, that's near a field is always good. And that's where you'll, you'll get a mixture of, of grouse and woodcock. River bottoms, you know. So you obvious water source. Yeah, for water, if they've got seeps in them, if there's uh, incongruous terrain. I've never hunted in the Great Lakes, but uh, my understanding is that it's pretty flat. But I kind of like a a rolling hill, you know. So it just you know you're looking for any kind of. Uh, protection. Uh, you need to have some pines in there for the winter and, um, you know, in bad weather because the bird, the grouse will roost, especially when it's snowing. Um, you're going to need to have some catkins and buds. Um, I ran into a woman about 30 years ago and she told me that she was a, a former in New Hampshire, her husband died. She was probably in her eighties. And she said the secret ingredient is, um, black locust and that you need five black locusts per grouse. And that that's what gets them through, uh, the winter. And I found that to be reliable. Really? Yeah. Cause they're budding in the winter. <clears throat> yep. That's, right. you know, cause there's no ground forage. Right. That's interesting. We were talking about that 
with have with Nick the other day when we were hunting, and I forget what tree he was saying, but it wasn't black locust. But he was saying there was some tree that in the dormant time of winter is popping buds and they're eating that. I think he was saying quaking aspen. Yep. Yeah. Sumac's another good winter forage. Um, crab apples are that's another fruit that I missed that that I found. I found more grouse in the in the crab apples and the apples. Hmm. Cool. Well, that's all good information. All right, another sidebar change discussion. Tom, I, you've alluded to it that you've written, but tell people what your your day hustle, your day job besides chasing grouse and scouting is. Um, my wife and I own a marketing company called the cure group and it's kind of a combination of of all of our careers um i started off uh, went to grad school thinking that i wanted to be a college english professor and realized that i preferred to write but i had a lot of debt from undergraduate and then graduate work so i went to work for an advertising and pr agency in boston and um you know was working seven days a week um, you know, 15 hours a day was making some money, paid off my bills, but just really didn't like it. So I quit and was writing full time at that point. And then, uh, went from making a lot of money to making no money. And, um, it's like being a dog trainer. I just created a joke last week and i said i think that the the modern freelance writer makes less money than the dog trainer (laughs) but um then i went to work for orvis uh and worked there for 15 years and you know wound up um running the wholesale division which was basically everything except um it was canada the united states um the Bahamas, uh, all box stores, all brick and mortars, all OEM, which is uh, private label stuff. So I worked with Walmart, Cabela's, Bass Pro. Um, and just, you know, I was on the road 300 days a year, and I finally, you know, met my wife and um, just said, you know, I don't, I don't see myself doing this, being on the road and for 300 days a year. So, so what about this? Let's start our own company and we'll take advertising, public relations, branding, marketing, and, um, and she's, um, excellent with IT. She's a creative designer too. And, uh, we've got six employees now and we just work in verticals. So, um, it's all hunt fish. We work with lodges, um, small to medium-sized manufacturers, large manufacturers, and and um, and it's been a lot of fun. And it's it's really been a blessing because we've got two kids and we're able to raise them with me being home more and you know having dinner together every night. Good for you. Good now, for you. Are, now are you able to travel with it being real hunting, fishing kind of a uh, business? Are you able to go and? experience the lodge before you uh, do a little advertising that'd be that'd be written in the contract if i were you um you know (laughs) 
We got a call. So the answer is yes, and it and it resulted from this bizarre call that we had a bunch of years ago, where this this I, I answer the phone and and this guy screams and says, "Have you ever heard of Maxbo Hardcore?" And I was like, "Maxbo Hardcore," and I was like, and I remembered hearing about it. Um, and I was like, "Is that that AI deer?" And he's like, "We got Maxbo Hardcore," and it was a uh, you know, one of these high fence programs. Yeah. And, um, and I said, you know, well, I'd really got to come down and, and see your facility before, before we start working together, just to make sure that we're all on the same page here. But before I do that, can you tell me how you, how you guys hunt? And he goes, Oh yeah, we get a guide. We put a client in the, in the blind. And when the deer come out, you know, I give them a, uh, menu and I say that one over there I green scored about 180 and that's going to cost you eight grand and the one behind him it looks like he's about uh, 220 and he's going to cost 25 grand and I said and then what do you do and he goes well then I you know take my four square and um, swipe his credit card and if it clears I tell him to take the shot and no <laughs> so, shit <laughs> yeah, and I said I don't, I don't I don't think that we're the right company for you. But no, we have right. worked with um we worked with a, a lodge out in Colorado that had it was a fishing and hunting lodge, uh the High Lonesome Ranch and the K Bar T that was a fishing lodge in in uh Meeker, Colorado. Deepwater K that was in the Bahamas, we relaunched that. Um that it was a a commercial bone fishing operation that then uh, became a private club. It was founded in 1957 really? by wow. AJ, by AJ McLean. And, um, you know, and then it wound up um, becoming a private club that went into foreclosure and then some new owners bought it. And that was a relaunch of that property, which was, that's a super cool bone fish operation they were just impacted by the storm i was just gonna say how are they faring now um they had about 60 percent devastation from that from the last hurricane jesus so rebuilding again yeah um do you happen to have any good customers up in alaska during the salmon season <laughs> no but i should I, you know you got time you gotta get, start hammering the phones and uh, yeah. find somebody yeah, they're they're all pretty full off during salmon season. <laughs> they have been, you know, we talked to a couple of them a bunch of years ago, and they were looking to uh, to fill up the eco tourism, which we don't do much with, you know, like whale watches and yeah, you know, photojournalistic, you know, trips. Right. Well, wow. uh, we had a couple of main um, grouse woodcock. Landlocked salmon and brook trout lodges. Uh, we had a south. Uh, we had a um, plantation in northern Florida. Um, quail operation in North Carolina. A pheasant operation in South Dakota. That's awesome. Have you been so to the Salmon River here in New York? Have you been to the Salmon River? Uh, I've been there a couple times. Yeah. I was just fishing the Douglaston uh, yesterday. How'd you do? 
uh, hiked in about a mile and froze my tail off. Uh, and the guy next to me caught four steelhead and, uh, I don't know. I don't think he heard me muttering anything under my breath, but he might've, um, but it had a good time. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a good time. That's a neat area. Oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it was, I mean, I guess I joked, hiked a mile in, but I really did through a cornfield and, um, it was just a pretty unbelievable little area. Kevin's father-in-law is is a renowned fly fishing guy, like inducted into the Hall of Fame and all that jazz. And we didn't grow up fly fishing. We trout fished and bass fished and all that stuff. But he's taking Kevin under his wing, and they get to do a decent amount of it up there. Fran. Yeah. Yeah, we actually chatted about it. It's nice. I get uh, he's been showing me a bunch of stuff on tying flies and – it's been it's been a good time. I think that's really cool. Oh yeah, yeah. He, well, and then he also has lots of friends that have been tying flies for you know fifty years and this and that, and know people who started building the first rods and just there's a lot of history, uh, especially up in our area, as you're very well aware of. So it's it's just really interesting to meet all the different people and I don't know, pretty cool. Well, you're in a great part of the of the world. You got, um, you know, we used to have a, a goose lease in Canandaigua probably about 25 years ago before all the, you know, resident geese started staying here for the winter. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. And Montezuma, you guys are close to Montezuma, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. probably a 40-minute th- ride maybe, 35-minute ride. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, we're very fortunate to, you know, I think a lot of people don't look at New York State as a duck hunting place, and we all dream of Arkansas and Oklahoma and Kansas, but we truly are, you know, fortunate with all the farmland and corn and the Finger Lakes and Montezuma and all the money that DU has put into it. Um, you know, we we do well. I mean, this year has been a little slow, but overall, we do well. And you've got uh, a serious concentration of Canada geese, which is a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, shooting geese over water is one of my favorite things to do. It's like a cannonball yeah. flying out of the air. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of fun. We are fortunate. So, yep. do you have anything upcoming this year that you're excited about for hunting, or are you kind of winding down? Um, we're heading to, uh, to my in-laws in North Carolina at the end of the month and, and I'll spend, um, probably about a week, uh, um, looking for some quail. So I'm excited about that. I'm real excited about working with this puppy. He's coming along and I think he's probably going to be one of the best dogs I've ever had. So I'm pretty psyched about that. And, um, just starting to line up the fall, um, kind of at that age where, you know, you brought up the bucket list question before, and I've always wanted to hunt in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and in Michigan, you know, before I get too old and can't get through the woods as well as I am right now. So I'm kind of thinking about doing that and um, looking at um, southwestern quail for next January. 
Good for you. Good for you. Will you be by any chance going to Pheasant Fest? You know, I've been back and forth on on Pheasant Fest. I don't think I will go this year. I'm definitely not going to Shot. Um, I've done that a lot. It's um, so probably not. But that is a great show. Are you going? This is going to be my first year. Yep. That's a wonderful show. Yeah. They do. You know, they do such a great job. That's a great organization. Uh, I'm going to go with Yukonuba and bring my my dog with me and. So it'll be great to meet people and, and support Yukonuba at their event, you know, there and at their booth. But, you know, I haven't been to it. So to me, it's just going to be an experience. You'll fit right in. Just a bunch of dog guys and dog gals that love to hunt. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Tom, can you, uh, we're going to wrap this thing up because I know it's getting late. Um Tell everybody where they can find you. You are a writer, and, and you write for all the big magazines and your media group. You know, how if someone wants to work with you or bring you in on a project, how can they find you? So, um, our company web, our marketing company website is the Cure Group, T H E K E E R G R O U P dot com, and my writing website is TomKeer.com. Kevin, write that down. We need BobOwens.com. Uh, you should. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. That's badass. <laughs> that is badass. Now, actually, you probably quick, give it away did. for free, so don't worry about it. That's true. You did write a book, right, back in the day? Yeah, I wrote a, a book for Wilderness Adventures Press. Um, it was a saltwater destination book on um, on fishing in New England. Um which did not cover Connecticut. So it was Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Cape Cod, um, the sliver of coastal New Hampshire, and southern and central Maine. Cool. Wow. Everybody, give him a give him a shout. Give him a check out. And if you're interested in learning more about Tom, head to his website. Tom, thank you for joining us. I, I really enjoyed listening to your dog knowledge and grouse knowledge and just learning more about you thank you for joining the podcast and uh is there anything else you'd like to add no i just really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your your busy schedules and um and having me on your show so thank you very much for it no glad to have you Hey, patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters is a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go join the community. We appreciate it. And we'll see you there. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.